Hello, everybody, and welcome to this uh, latest Institute for Government uh, IFG Brexit event. I'm really sorry for the delay. We've been having some gremlins, and at the moment we've got uh, got maybe two and a half panelists. We're trying to make sure that everybody can get in uh, in time. So today our exam question is: What does the UK EU Trade and Cooperation Agreement really mean for the level playing field? We'll all remember that that was one of the most contentious issues in the negotiation and really only settled at the last minute. We've got two answers to that question, one from Ursula von der Leyen and one from Boris Johnson. So Ursula von der Leyen at her press conference the day the TCA was signed, hailed the agreement as meeting the EU's negotiating objectives. Competition in our single market will be fair and remain so. So the EU's rules and standards will be respected. We have effective tools to react if fair competition is distorted and impacts our trade. But at the same time, or just slightly later, Boris Johnson was hailing that deal as meeting the UK's negotiating objectives, a zero tariff, zero quota deal, which respected the UK's sovereignty and gave the UK the right to diverge. We have taken back control. Don't know where we heard that before, of our laws and our destiny. We have taken back control of every jot and tittle of our regulation in a way that is complete and unfettered. He agreed that there was scope for action, but said, we will certainly be using our newfound legislative freedom to drive progress in those sciences, and those investments across the whole UK. We will be free of EU state aid rules. We will be able to decide where and how we level up across our country uh, with new hopes, new jobs and new hope, including free ports and green industrial zones. So, that is where they think we've landed, but we still don't actually know the answer to our exam question. But we're going to try and answer that today. And to do that, I'm joined by four distinguished legal experts, but they have promised that they are not going to uh, speak in incomprehensible legal ease. Uh, they're going to try to demystify those level playing field conditions. So I'm joined by Professor David Collins, David is Professor of International Economic Law at City University of London. Dr. Professor Holger Hestermeyer, Professor of International and EU Law at King's College London, and I think probably joining us from Germany. Annalie Howard. Uh, Annalie is a barrister at Moncton Chambers, and in 10 days' time, delighted to say Annalie is going to be made a Queen's Council. So congratulations on that, Annalie. And last but by no means least, Dr. Totis Katsonis, Head of Subsidies, Procurement, Trade Agreements and Trade Remedies, sounds like he knows what he's talking about, from Pinsent Mason's uh, law firm. So those are our Fantastico panellists. So let's get going. And just a quick reminder that please enter any questions on Slido. Um, if you see somebody has asked more or less the question, obviously slightly less well-drafted, that you would have liked to ask, please upvote them rather than put in your own uh, own thing. And I will select the questions that most people want answering. And uh, please don't write a law essay. Uh, Holger is not going to sit there and mark you like one of his students. So it would be inordinately helpful if you could be brief, because I will be trying to read those and switch back to the panel. And that's why my eyes are going to dot around as though I look completely manic. Um, 
Let's just start off on a level playing field of understanding. Holger, could you, uh, I won't time you, no repetition, no deviation, no whatever, um, could you just tell us, what are we talking about today? What, what do we mean when lawyers talk about the level playing field provisions? What, are people, uh, what do people have in mind? So to start off, the, level, the term level playing field predates this agreement. It's uh, not uncommon in international trade agreements to have conditions for a level playing field. It's supposed to provide fairness for trade by guaranteeing that in other areas, the conditions are, if not the same, at least roughly comparable or comply with minimum standards. Uh, this agreement is unusual, though, in regard of the thoroughness of those provisions. Uh, it covers a lot of areas. I'm just going to run you quickly through the areas. There's competition policy, subsidy control, state-owned enterprises, taxation, labor and social standards, environment and climate, and trade and sustainable development. And with regard to those, in very different levels, uh, the agreement provides for certain standards that have to be complied with. These are, for example, incredibly thorough with regard to subsidy control. And on taxation, there is very little. With regard to some of them, there's a non-regression obligation. And then there are provisions on enforcement, uh, quite often providing for mandatory domestic enforcement by either independent agencies or courts, with some provisions on how this should be done. Uh, there's dispute settlement overall if the two partners of the agreement don't agree. Uh, there's an expert panel in particular for non-regression obligations. And then there are two very particular procedures, one for individual subsidies that the states do not like, uh, uh, certain measures there. And then there's a provision on rebalancing where the two partners depart in terms of regulation. And one thing that this has an enormous impact on trade. And then they can take remedial measures, which means impose tariffs and thereby sort of rebalance the level playing field. That is the idea. And I think we're going to discuss today to what extent these provisions are restrictive, to what extent they're successful and can serve as an example. But I want to say in terms of uh, what you stated, the goals were, I think actually both are right. Uh, these provisions meet the goals of both partners in that EU law is not imposed on the UK. The UK is entirely free from EU law. Yet there are provisions on level playing field that are more solid than what you usually see in trade agreements. OK, so this is slightly odd for trade. We know that the UK basically wanted a sort of what we might term a bog standard trade agreement, it cut and paste from uh, selected highlights of previous EU agreements, Canada, Japan, South Korea. Do they have similar provisions, Holger? Yes or no? There are some uh, provisions, but these provisions are unusual in their breadth and scope. But I wanted to say in that regard, there are no standard trade agreements. They're all individually negotiated. And it was to be expected that this agreement would have a vastly more restrictive uh, level playing field conditions. First of all, because that was an EU red line. But second, I think the development in international trade is towards more conditionalities, whether you take 
the renegotiation of the US-Mexico agreement and, for example, a minimum uh, wage for labor that goes into cars put into rules of origin or other trade agreements. This is the direction in which we're heading. So it's not surprising. And actually, I think it's also not bad for the UK because we will have to think about how to construct our level playing field conditions in future trade agreements as well. Okay, that's uh, that's very helpful. So let's uh, let's take a view from the panelists about how this might turn out in practice. We've now got the theory of the provisions, but they haven't yet been tested. Um, David, do you think that this is ultimately going to give Boris Johnson all those rights that he was just celebrating in that quote I read out about the freedom to do things very differently from the EU? while I suppose maintaining his achievement, which was a zero tariff, zero quota deal? Yeah, I, I think so. I think the uh, level playing field commitments that we see in this treaty are incredibly complex. And there's a vast amount of detail that goes far beyond anything I've seen in a free trade agreement. But ultimately, I think they're actually rather narrow in terms of the kinds of, of policy uh, choices that they would end up restricting. And I suspect that this was drafted at a time, I guess last fall, when there was a strong suspicion that the UK might be drifting towards this Singapore on Thames mentality of free willing, um, let's say, uh, 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 Thatcherite uh, free market approach. And that doesn't seem to be the way that we're going. So the, uh, the non regression provisions have incredibly narrow language. We talk about material impact, uh, measure then the, the response in tariffs must be strictly necessary in proportion. There must be clear evidence, not speculation. So this strikes me as language that was drafted specifically to really narrow the focus uh, in, in terms of the kinds of policies that they would capture. Now, I think where there's a more breadth is in relation to the competition slash uh, subset the issues, and it seems in light of the, the budget that we've just seen, it, indeed, it may be perhaps ironic, this is the area where there's the greatest risk, it will be the government maybe propping up uh, certain failing sectors that could end up triggering the, the subsidy concerns and the effects that that might have on trade or investment. Okay, that's very interesting. I'm going to get into that. I'm going to take everybody's view on whether we're on the same page about whether these are very restrictive or not. And... Uh, and a reminder that if you have questions, please do post them even as we're speaking speaking on Slido. Annalie, do you share David's view that actually there's nothing much to fear here if you're the UK government about your freedom of policy action from the provisions that were negotiated in the TCA? Let's let's go to TOTIS and we'll try and sort out what's happened to Annalise. I think I was muted by the host. You may be able to hear oh, me now. Annalie, Sorry, yeah. I've been unmuted. Sorry. <laughs> Annalie, what do you um, make of this? So the broad principle of the TCA is it recognises the right of each party, with the EU and the UK, to regulate their own affairs. So there's a sort of broad principle of trust at the centre of this agreement that to give the latitude to regulate. And I, th I think the state aid um, piece is actually quite quite a good example of that because there is. Um, you know, a, a system, a general framework of principles that the UK needs to abide by, but it's um, generally free to set its own agenda. And last month, they, uh, the Department of Business, Enterprise, um, 
set out it, its consultation on how it sees its state aid regime and what its policy objectives are. And that's obviously very tied into the, its levelling up agenda. So it really wants to promote uh, a regional balance. It wants to create jobs and investment, particularly in R&D and AI and environmental climate change. So, yes, there is that latitude there. But then there is a system of checks and balances. So as David just said, in order to snooker those aims within the framework, they've got to comply with certain general principles. There are also more specific principles they have to comply with. And then at the end, there is this break through the dispute resolution mechanism, whether it's through arbitration or whether it's through um, rebalancing or remedial measures that actually can constrain the ability at the end. But when you actually dig down into the, the substance of it, you'll see that those general principles aren't that much different from what was under the EU state aid regime, for example, anyway. Um, so, yes, we may not have the bureaucracy and the technicality of the EU rules, but the overarching principles are very, very similar. That's interesting. Totus, if you're looking at this from inside the Commission, do you think that the UK has regained significantly regulatory freedom to do things very differently? David said that actually, you know, in practice, this may not be a Singaporean uh, deregulating government, uh, but it clearly is a government that does see quite a lot of scope for much more direct government intervention in business. And only this week we saw some announcements in the budget that might have uh, raised eyebrows, if not in the commission, at least with Margaret Thatcher uh, on, you know, free ports and things like that. And, you know, big government funds to subsidise things. Uh, what does the commission think that uh, the UK can and can't do under the terms of the TCA? Well, ultimately, Edua, I, mean, I think everyone is right on what has been said so far, because the, the, the deal is it's about managing divergence, essentially. I mean, trade deals and what it is about bringing the parties closer. This particular deal is a dynamic deal, and it's one which tries to manage divergence. So in principle, yes, we can do a, a number of things, but potentially there's cost to be had, there's cost to be paid if we go too far. So... Um, I think, yes, uh, there is, a, in, in relation to, for example, subsidies, the, 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 there is a, a, a framework which looks very similar uh, to the uh, state eight uh, uh, sort of uh, rule book, if you like, although language is used as different. In substance, it's similar. It does allow for greater latitude, absolutely does. It's not as, 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 as uh, um, strict as, as the EU rule book. So I think yes, we could be doing uh, different things differently and 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 be more generous, if you like, if the government wishes to do so uh, with, with taxpayers' money. Um, but up to a point, um, and at some point, um, whether significant effect on 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 uh, a negative effect on trade, for example, and, and investment, um, there could be uh, repercussions as a result of direct action by by the EU, uh, and ultimately the rebalancing of their whole arrangement on a longer term basis. So I want to come on to this question of um, clearly, you know, the two sides have um, have regulatory freedom, as long as it doesn't have a significant effect on trade or material impact on trade. I think they're different, uh, different wordings in different parts of those level playing field provisions. 
So I'm going to ask you a sort of question. Maybe it's not for lawyers. Maybe it's for economists. But ultimately, we know it'll be lawyers arguing on this. What constitutes a material impact on trade? And I'm also quite interested. Uh, this is getting super nerdy. That was a question from Matt. So thanks, Matt, about how will the EU assess material impact? I suppose it's ultimately for the panel of experts or the arbitration panel to decide what's material impact. But also, how do these provisions in the TCA interact with, I think it was Article 10 of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which we saw quite an expansive definition of from the European Commission about how those reach back provisions about anything that the UK government did that might affect trade with Northern Ireland, which, of course, is uh, is also uh, sitting inside the single market for goods to some extent. So what is, a, Holger, what's the test of a material impact? Do we, do we know? Is this well established in international law? So I'll start off with material impact is part of this rebalancing exercise. When the parties think, for example, our standards are diverging, and one party thinks this is, now has a material impact on trade and investment, it can take rebalancing measures. It's an unprecedented mechanism, so there is absolutely no case law on this precise point for this precise mechanism. So we have to get our idea about what material means from the wording. You look it up in the dictionary, significant. Um, that really just explains and or changes one rather vague term for another one. And you look at uh, case law in similar areas. And I think the most pertinent here is uh, one under the CAFTA agreement uh, between- Which agreement, what agreement is that? That is an agreement between the US and the Central American states. And okay. here the US complained about labor standards in Guatemala. And it has a trade impacts test. Because the first issue, even when, before you say, it's the, is the impact material, you have to say, well, when does diverging regulation have provable impact on trade? How do you show that? Uh, the Most of WTO case law, strangely, says you don't have to show trade effects. So this is quite different. And in that case, uh, the US tried to show that uh, that non-compliance with labor standards and non-enforcement of certain labor standards had a trade impact, but uh, it was quite indirect. It concerned unionization of workers in ports and the impact they claimed was on international trade. So there were several steps in between that the US did not have concrete evidence for. And the panel said, you know what, insufficient. And there's some criticism of that panel in a later EU panel report with South Korea, <clears throat> but there a different labor provision without a trades test was at issue. So we know, and this is also suggested by later wording in the rebalancing provision, that you need some sort of evidence. What evidence precisely will have to be determined by the panel, but looking at the provision, it makes it clear that there's fear that this provision might destabilize the whole ag agreement and there's a possibility of termination. So it's supposed to be applicable. So the standard is high, but it is a meetable standard. How exactly uh, will be left to later dispute settlement? I've also looked at the language in other, uh, at the wording in other languages 
it's generally always just wording that refers to a higher standard of impact, whether you take the German, wesentliche Auswirkungen, French, incidence importante, divergence importante, also interestingly, and in Spanish, the same effectos importantes, divergencias importantes, Italian, it's all the same wording. It's a higher standard, and it will be left to dispute settlement to determine what that concretely means, but you need some form of concrete evidence, not just theorizing. David, do you, do you agree that, that actually you know, Boris Johnson can assume that actually this is quite a high bar and therefore, as he said in that bit I read out, that actually there will be very infrequent resource, resort to this mechanism? Yeah, absolutely. I think Hulcher is absolutely right. Uh, if you look at the nature of the evidence that would need to be submitted, now remember, it's a material impact on investment or trade between the parties which suggests that it's not just that Britain improves its foreign direct investment flows or it uh, improves its trade flows. The question is actually um, whether or not the, the EU or the UK loses investment or trade other party. And that's what you need to do. By the incident funds, you need to look at foreign direct investment flows between the UK and the EU. And they go up and down every year. And it's very you have to... Uh, Establish causation and discount other factors like the economy and whatnot. Trade flows again up and down every year. This is why it's such a hard provision to crystallize into a um, legal ability. We see these kinds of provisions in the investment treaties, uh, non-aggression provisions. Uh, these have these have um, not been successful, uh, and it, in fact, when investors have tried to claim that, that, that there's been uh, some uh, adverse effect as a consequence of non-regression. They've had to piggyback this on top of other standards, particularly the fair and equitable treatment standards. I think it's... Um, okay. Ultimately, you have to look at the, at the counterfactual. What would have happened in the absence of this change in regulation? And that's so hard to answer. And this, this is an issue that arises in, in the context of subsidies cases of the World Trade Organization. So I think this is a mechanism that was not intended to be used frequently, and it's meant to capture the most egregious, most blatant reason departure. And it just doesn't seem that these two parties are that far apart in terms of their policy mindset. That's that's really interesting. So I've got two lawyers and two very similar opinions. So this isn't at all like doing a session with economists who would have given me at least five different opinions by now. Um, Annalie, you wanted to come in. Yes. I'm, am I still muted? No. Great. Um, I think there's an important distinction between the remedial measures on the one hand and the rebalancing measures on the other. So the remedial measures are really targeted at isolated um, uh, actions, individual measures. And obviously, you have to show a significant effect. The rebalancing measures are dealing with a systemic problem. So that's where the UK is diverging and the extent of diversion over time on a systemic basis is undermining um, the agreement. So um, that is, a, I think, a much higher threshold, even though the significant effect, the same language is used. I think it is, it is an ultimate kind of nuclear option of a last resort. So that is that is a high um, measure. The other thing is we're looking at in fact a significant effect on trade and investment. Now it's not clear what the dividing line is between those because you can imagine a policy 
where say the UK says, right, we're going to create new green energy. We're going to create a fund and we, you have to build this in the north of England so that um, there are jobs and investment there. There's a risk there, of course, that there will be then subsidy races between the UK and the EU with companies trying to get the funding and setting up jobs and investment in particular regions. Now, is that a necessary incidence of state aid? Because any grant like that will have that effect. Or is there a risk that that will be distorting investment into one particular locality of the UK rather than the EU? It's at the moment we can only surmise what what's going to be but what is clear is that we're very need there will need to be a clear evidence base there are numerous statements throughout the tca saying you can't launch these procedures on the basis of conjecture you've got to have concrete plausible evidence and that means that the companies that are affected although they don't have any direct rights under these agreements as they used to enjoy under eu law they are going to have to be plugged in to the government, to the UK or the EU to actually provide this evidence and to show what the impact is on their business operations. And Annalie, if the government decided that it was going to subsidise a green energy plant in Northern Ireland rather than in the north of England as part of its levelling up agenda, uh, would it have to go through different procedures? How does that work? Because that's obviously governed by the protocol rather than by the TCA. Well, of course, this was the, the battleground before Christmas, because Article 10 of the Northern Ireland Protocol basically incorporates the entire EU rulebook. So it refers to Annex 5. And if you look at Annex 5, there are all the state aid rules and regulations, communications, guidance and soft law that is basically now hardwired into the Northern Ireland system. So, yes, in Northern Ireland, any kind of grant or fund like that would have to be notified to the European Commission and there would be a standstill obligation so it wouldn't be able to be implemented until it had been assessed and approved by the Commission first and of course there are quite severe penalties and recovery if it were to be implemented without prior approval. So for the Northern Ireland aspects there, there is um, uh, EU law still applies. The interesting question is obviously if there was a grant for something in the, in Great Britain that then was having impacts on trade with Northern Ireland, perhaps a grant for a product that was being sold in Northern Ireland and then exported to the EU, would that bite the EU state aid rules? And, and obviously the, the EU concept of effect on trade is very broad. It covers any direct, or indirect, actual or potential effect. So in theory, yes, there could be um, uh, a kind of overreach of the EU state aid rules for for subsidies that are given, say, to Newcastle or um, uh, or to Scotland. So uh, this obviously was the battleground before Christmas, where uh, the government was going to pass the Internal Markets Bill to disapply those provisions, um, and the Commission has issued its declaration. But actually, when you look at the declaration, the Commission's wording is basically just repeating what the EU Court of Justice rules are on state aid. So it doesn't really take us much further. Totis, you wanted to come in. Yes, sure. I mean, so a couple of points, actually. I mean, the first one is we have now parallel systems. So we have Article 10 in the in the, in the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Withdrawal Agreement. And now we've got the subsidy control provisions in the, in the TCA. And, and, and there is a possibility, there is also the reachback, if you like, of, of two 
uh, uh, different bodies or two different frameworks, both having jurisdictions over the same measure. That would be fascinating because potentially that might lead to a situation where um, under our, our own substitute control rules would say the measure is fine, but then the commission takes a view on the same measure and says, no, it's not fine. Uh, so that'd be fascinating to see what happens. Now, the other aspect actually, and just to disagree a little bit with what was being said about how high is the is the test. And, and as quite rightly was said, we have slightly different wording, uh, you know, does it amount to much significant uh, negative effect in relation to a remedial measure under substitute control. And for the rebalancing measures, we've got the material effect where there are significant divergences. And, and as quite rightly was said uh, um, by Anne that relates to systemic divergences over the longer periods. Now, I think and just going back to, to what Holger was saying, we're referring to the, 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 the US case with Guatemala and all that. My view is that it cannot be the case that the threshold is so high that ultimately the provisions become meaningless. They have to have some application, some real application, if I could put it that way. Otherwise, this is not a carrot and stick. This is not no incentive to maintain a convergence. And the whole point of checks and balances is to allow sufficient latitude to make changes, but at the same time, effective remedies to disincentivize uh, 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 um, sort of the possibility of divergence. So I'm I'm a little bit concerned about the possibility of saying, no, no, don't, nothing to worry about. It's not. It's going to be a nuclear option. I thought it said. Uh, I, I think we're rushing a little bit to with that. Obviously, hasn't been tested. It's merely a view, but instinctively and ref, by reference to what the parties were trying to do, which is to square a circle of different opposing uh, uh, red lines, if you like, it has to be the case that these uh, uh, um, um, remedies, these, these defense remedies, have a, a practical application, an effective application. Okay, um, I've got Holger, I know you want to come in as well, but I'm going to give you some examples which our very excellent audience are posting on Slido as areas where the UK government has at least sort of, you know, made eyes at possible changes and, uh, and the EU might be watching like a hawk, we have the EU representation in London. They have a team, I think, monitoring what the UK government is up to. <clears throat> and I think we know that we're currently operating in what might be described as quite a low trust environment, uh, to put it nicely, after some of the sort of events of the week. So both sides, a bit suspicious. Um, Matt, thanks, Matt. Matt's asked, you know, actually, what sort of in scope? Um, we know that the government is interested in concluding a trade deal with the US and the US has very different agricultural standards. If the UK was prepared to accept chlorinated chicken, would that make a difference? Um, so would that be an impact? What about if we uh, did the sort of James Dyson amendment of change rules on product standards for vacuum cleaners? I think that was uh, one thing he disliked. Um, I know that we've moved to uh, move to liberate uh, neonicotinoids to help the sugar beet industry. Don't know whether the EU's fussed about that, some of those sorts of things. Or more generally, there was a brief flurry a couple of weeks ago when it looked as though the business department might be having another look at the working time directive, which we know lots of UK governments of both stripes have regarded as unnecessarily intrusive uh whatever so if the uk government moved on those would any of those 
raise more than eyebrows in the EU? Or where actually might some flashpoints arrive? We take Totis points that Totis point that you know these aren't completely just there for show on the EU side. Holger, I mean, German business, which we all in the UK hopefully thought was going to rescue us, um, was actually one of the sort of areas that was most one of the players who were most concerned about the threats from a uh, deregulating, super competitive UK. Possibly their concerns about corporation tax have been allayed by the events of this week, but we've seen the super deduction come in with a sort of huge, big investment uh, subsidy to the tax system. Um, where where might there be flashpoints arising? Okay, so um, I'll, I'll try to systematize them a little bit. I think there are, first of all, for example, SPS divergences, which are likely to arise both from CPTPP and from a possible trade deal with the US. Remind or, us, Holger, what the CPTPP stands oh, for. Oh, sorry, that's the uh, trade agreement with the Pacific Rim nations uh, that we actually have applied to join. Um, including, uh, for example, Mexico, including Chile, uh, including Australia, and um, including New Zealand. New Zealand, I think, is the registrar for the agreement. So uh, the, the agreement, they store the agreement and they store the applications for accession and similar things. Now, uh, I think that concern is largely resolved by the very limited uh, SPS bits of the trade uh, agreement. So uh, the UK goods are subject to full SPS control when they enter the EU, and there haven't been a lot of simplifications. And I think one of the reasons is that the UK didn't want to bind itself, and that the EU was afraid that there would be divergence on the books. So that basically these barriers result from the uh, prospect of divergence, and I don't expect there to be additional measures. So, Holger, would a Dutch, um, you know, whoever grows loads of chickens in the EU, if we reduced our standards on cage size or stuff like that, I mean, that's after all why the US chlorinates, because its animal welfare standards are much lower, um, or at least that's the story, he said, poor people come and get me. Um, yeah, and that's gives them that means they can produce it much more cheaply. That wouldn't be um, seen as a material impact on on because trade. I was um, not referring to the chlorinated bit. So if, right, the, okay. if the standards result in the chlorination, the animal standards themselves, you would have to look whether they fall into the environmental section. All right, um, okay. And if they do, uh, that might start to uh, raise systemic concerns. So th these systemic concerns would be from the more systemic issues such as overall animal standards or the working time directive. Yeah. Um, and I, I probably take a middle position on the application of the rebalancing mechanism of 9.4. I think the standard is high because of the material impact. But I actually do think that, um, and the provision itself says that, there's a risk of it being overapplied if the provision regards or, or has consequences for over-application of the provision, it clearly means that it wants that, that, that application must be possible. Um, now, the question is, when exactly does that become relevant? Uh, and here, I think, just changing the working time directive, that doesn't 
alone raised to the standard. If, however, in fact, the standards are changed to such an extent that working times are raised significantly, um, and this results in competitive advantages, then we might be getting somewhere. And I think here we have an issue between theory of deregulation and practice of deregulation. There have been enormous noises made about massive deregulation. Singapore, uh, no working time directive, mm, environmental standards. At the same time, though, that is not the overall direction of travel of the UK. At least it hasn't been in the past. And I'm not entirely sure it will be in the future. I think we're speaking more about a bit of deregulation here, a, a bit of higher standards there. Um, and I think this is where we get to the uncertainty of the future. If at some point the deregulation spiel is back in the books, we will get to uh, the rebalancing mechanism. And uh, I think the working time directive is one thing that will be watched very closely. But if it's just nominal changes, we're not yet there. If we have massive changes, we will get to rebalancing. And uh, then we'll also see very likely dispute settlement and a clarification of those very vague terms uh, that we see in the mm. Totus, um, we've got a question here from Anonymous, which is uh, looking at the budget. Um, the government's made much of the fact it couldn't do free ports as an EU member. Quite a lot of people have pointed out that's actually not true. But let's lay that on one side. Uh, it is doing free ports and it's promised a whole array of breaks. Oh, will the EU be concerned about that? Are there, does the TCA limit what benefits the UK could offer through free ports? Uh, no, as long as uh, the subsidy control provisions of the TCA are complied, complied with, we can do whatever we like. Um, so... I, I'm not, I mean, and, and, and as you said, Jill, you know, I think there's been a lot of talk about the, 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 the free ports, free ports were present on the continent uh, for a long, long time. Um, I, I'm not particularly excited by them. Um, any other measures? Sorry. Add person. The front, it's the centerpiece of the budget. You should be excited. Yes, about. No, I'm saying I'm not, I'm not concerned by by the, you know the extent you know with free ports breach TCA obligations. I'm, I don't. I'm not particularly concerned about them breaching TCA subsidy control obligations. That's that's the point I was I was trying to make. Um, and generally, I mean, I think it is correct that we can do things differently. Even within the TCA, for example, the the thresholds for granting aid in relation to certain things uh, are, are, are higher than those that apply under state aid law. And indeed, uh, um, unless the EU can demonstrate that there is a significant uh, a negative effect, they they can't really intervene or, or sort of raise any issues with what we do now. That is important because, as, as I think Annalie has mentioned quite rightly, under EU law, the, the question is the effect on trade, which is a much, much lower threshold. So we have masses of latitude. I mean, I think it is important to, 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 um, to, to keep to that. But, but, but nonetheless, I mean, the, the, the two separate questions here. One is, do we really, does the state want to use the taxpayers' money in a, in a more... Um, uh, uh, sort of um, a generous manner. I mean, we've been the best in class as uh, uh, when we're part of the, of the 
you, even just before Brexit, when um, under the state aid law, we did not go as far as we would have gone, like Germany, for example, in, in granting aid to our own uh, um, uh, entities. And I think, to be honest, from my perspective, that was quite correct. The, the government has been really uh, um, um, uh, careful as to the justification for granting uh, aid, uh, state aid, and, and, and I think um, I, I'm actually uh, quite glad to say that um, what I'm seeing in the budget and generally is that ultimately uh, the government will re retain that sense of um, uh, prudence, if you like, in, in, in intervening and perhaps intervening more generously, but nonetheless within a very tight framework that is conscious of the, of the, of, of the use of taxpayers' uh, money. And just one last point, actually, which is slightly different, which is about uh, the, the, the cost of divergence. And I think it's important to, uh, to, to, to be clear that we have the, the level playing field uh, obligations and indeed a possibility for remedial measures that apply to environmental and, and, and labor laws and subsidy laws. But then there is everything else which is out, sit outside the LPF. I mean, the, 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 the TCA is a quite, as everyone says, is quite thin in, in many respects. Financial services are not covered um, uh, and other aspects of services are not covered sufficiently. Now, the question is, would we divert in those areas? And I think we do have a, a dilemma already, which is the extent to which we diverge in relation to financial services, for example, that might affect our ability to gain access to the single market uh, on the basis of equivalence. So we're going to be having dilemmas everywhere, not just in relation to LPFs. Yeah, that is true, though. Uh, though some might think that the chance of us actually getting equivalence is not necessarily hugely high anyway for whether we diverge or not. But uh, but anyway, Annalie, you wanted to come in on the question of the scope for regulatory regulatory divergence. I'm going to, then I want to actually look at it from the other way. And I'm going to come to David about whether the, I'm going to put him on notice. That I'm going to ask him about whether the UK has cause for action. Because Boris Johnson was very much at pains to stress that this was a reciprocal agreement and the UK would also be watching uh, what the EU was up to. Annalie, uh, scope, where might we see flashpoints on divergence? So I, th I think where you see isolated measures like the chlorinated chicken um, example, that's, a, that's an issue that would go to the remedial measures. So, you know, if we start shifting the product standards or altering um, the, the uh, chlorinated, chlorination or safety standards, that's, that's an issue that really should be addressed through tariffs or should be addressed through quotas, through the remedial, to, to, through the remedial measures to um, counterbalance and remedy that, that distortion of competition between the UK and the EU. For the rebalancing measures, I think it's something that's much, as I said, much more systemic. And I, I, I was thinking of examples. I mean, we've just um, adopted this for, um, uh, foreign investment and national security bill that's going through Parliament at the moment, which is giving um, the government a call in power to review acquisitions or transactions, and there's there's no monetary threshold for this, where there might be foreign investment coming into specific sectors of the economy, which are considered to be of national importance for our infrastructure or which pose national security concerns. Now, that sort of review and check and prohibition of the transactions taking place because the government doesn't want foreign investment and control being taken over those assets or those companies, I think is an area that might give rise to a systemic issue um, that um, 
you know, could potentially be in conflict. Another example would be government contracts, you know, procurement regime. Suppose there was a buy British or a made in Britain requirement for um, for the the grant of the contract. That's another thing I think that would have a material impact on trade between the UK and the EU because it would effectively foreclose European companies from participating in those tenders. And, and similarly with that proposal perhaps for local establishment, creating a local base, creating jobs, could that give rise to systemic? Um, that's where you're gonna get into whether it's objectively justified and proportionate. Um, so I still see the, um, the rebalancing me measures as a fairly extreme measure. I mean, that is, if you're looking at it as sort of heating up towards divorce, <laughs> Um, it, that is a very rapid fire measure. And I think that the, the most compelling part of it is actually the think speak, that anyone's going to think very carefully, any authority will think very carefully about triggering that process, because those measures can be imposed within five days. And if there is a challenge, there are then countervailing measures. It really signifies a breakdown in the relationship um, that shouldn't be undertaken lightly. So I think any responsible authority is going to consider that as part of its risk assessment before an impact assessment before it even proposes any measures. That's very interesting. Um, I know that actually one of the things when the Commission reported the agreement, one of the things that they pulled out as a major negotiating triumph for the EU was the fact that the UK had signed up to the procurement provisions, which I have to say, I thought the UK would not be very keen to do. But uh, David, David Frost, when he was giving evidence to Parliament uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, said that he part of the work of his then unit in the in number 10 was going to be to monitor what the EU was up to and look at whether the UK wanted to use the provisions under the TCA to challenge the EU. The sort of logic of your position is that that's not a very worthwhile endeavour, that even though, as Tote said, the EU is a much bigger traditional user of state aid in other member states, uh, including Germany, France, uh, than the UK is, that actually uh, there's not that much mileage in it for the UK either. But do you see anything that the UK might want to, uh, want to look at a bit askance? Um, we know that Northern Ireland's very destabilised in some senses by the very low rate of corporation tax in the Republic tracks a lot of investment into Dublin that might otherwise go somewhere else. Um. Yeah, I, I think he had to say that, didn't he? Because uh, the UK has been wants to depict itself as not, as not being a free-willing deregulator. It wants to show that it's not just incurring obligations, but it's gaining rights from the which of course is the case. So he, he had to say that. And I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, corporation tax is one Classically, Ireland has taken advantage of that, but it, it would seem as though um, this is not really a priority now. And like the, the budget that we've seen, the lower tax never really the agenda of the UK. Although that's not to say that um, more competitive tax regimes may be, might even be a, more of a concern now for Britain. But I think the, the important thing to keep in mind is if we did have the PCA, what would we have? We would have in which case, in the case of competition, state aid, you'd have a subsidies chapter of the WTO, the SCM agreement. And I would say that the text that we have TCA is a vast improvement on the 
against CM uh, simply because of its clarity, its coverage, and its reference to many more areas uh, that, the, that the CM was lacking. So I, I, I think as, as an international lawyer looking at it, we see clear of the kinds of things, export subsidies, local content, bailouts. So there, there's much more clarity there. And I, it, it may end up being the case that the enhanced uh, transparency, enhanced the notice periods, so on. It may be the case that, that um, this arrangement will end up foreclosing what might have ended up being WTO issues and would have been messy. Uh, the other point to mention is one of the risks of uh, government intervention of course, is the pandemic response in the coming years. But we see fairly clear carve-outs for that in the TCA, which refers to emergency situations. And uh, it doesn't, I don't think it mentions pandemic specifically, but presumably that would be covered. So I think uh, there's a broad range of government interventions that might happen on both sides of the channel that parties will just back off from uh, because of the nature of the circumstances that unfolded uh, in, in the years. Excellent. I want to spend our last few minutes just going through how we actually think this is going to be uh, evolving. So I'm going to ask you to cast forward um, that, you know, things been in operation for a couple of years. Do we actually think that there will, you know, you will all have been spending your life in the panel of experts making, resolving loads of disputes? Will these have ended up in negotiations um we've seen some you know threats of infringement proceedings over the uk's unilateral extension to the grace periods announced on wednesday under the northern ireland protocol uh do we think this is going to be a source of continued friction or is actually it all going to sort of settle down and both sides will do that and annalise already sort of given us you know possibilities of some of the systemic issues that could lead to the more nuclear option of the uh, of the trade and cooperation agreement, and particularly if you're in business, I just want you all to think that you're advising a client. Does business say, "Well, actually, this TCA is not perhaps the relationship I might have preferred with the EU. Maybe I'm very happy with it, but actually, it now provides me with a really stable view of what sort of economic relationship there will be between the UK and the EU." long term and i can bank on you know at least a certain form of market access even if not uh, quite the equivalent of being inside the single market uh so let's take views on you know is this a trade and cooperation agreement or is it uh possibly more a sort of trade and confrontation agreement i'm trademarking that by the way everybody um <laughs> annalee is this a recipe for uh two sides getting on or are we going to see lots of disputes or are we actually in two years time going to notice one or two proportionate remedial actions <laughs> or actually none of the above where do you think we'll we're going to see this go I mean I, I started reading TCA on Christmas Eve which wasn't the best Christmas Eve ever my kids were not <laughs> happy with me but um, uh, and I was sort of overwhelmed with thinking oh my god you know we have got all this latitude now to do our own thing in every in 65 different sectors of the economy and how on earth are we going to get up to speed with all this new this new legislation this new policy and i wouldn't underestimate the amount of time it actually takes <laughs> to actually come up with those new policy rules get it through all the consultation the statutory process so i think 
we're going to have a minimum, I would say, of three years of just bedding down and working out what we want to do with these new freedoms um, and, and going through the right procedures to do it. So I, I wouldn't expect kind of a, maybe Northern Ireland's a different issue, but on the on the Great Britain front, I wouldn't expect explosions immediately. I think um, we'll have this bedding down process. There's a status quo provided by the um, Withdrawal Act. And and then are our policy objectives really that very different from the EU? I mean, we're not major subsidy providers. We, we provide four billion of subsidies a year. We're one of the lowest subsidy providers in the EU. You know, we want to maintain the environmental standards. That's very important with climate change. So are we really going to diverge that much? I suspect we're not. It's just keeping the ship steady. And I think, you know, this comes down to trust. And I think where there are little bumps in the road, hopefully that will be resolved through conciliation and political discourse rather than engaging full scale confrontation. But okay. I'm optimist. <laughs> OK, so political solutions, not uh, not permanently ending up with briefing lawyers on both sides. Uh, sounds like relatively bad news for a law firm, Totus. Do you think that's uh, uh, in your forward business plan? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't dis disagree uh, much with, with Anna, actually. I, I, I must say, um, I, I, look, we, we, are the, we have been the architects of the single market. Lord Cofield, uh, Liam Britton, uh, Michael Thatcher, you know, we, a, a lot of the regulation, a lot of the legislation is legislation, EU legislation, is legislation is, which we are happy with. Um, and so, again, I completely agree on that point with Anna, which is, there's no obvious reason why there would be substantive divergences. Yes, there might be points here and there, but substantive divergences, significant divergences, there's, there's no reason for that at the moment. Um, what concerns me a little bit is two points. One is whether there is a kind of a, you know, an approach of, well, we have our independence now, we'll do that anyway, just to show that we have our independence, sort of a, if you like, a kind of an approach which is, we have the freedom, let's use it, a kind of approach. The other, potentially more problematic, it could be that if we ever were to uh, enter into negotiations with another strategic partner, um, that might lead to pressures to do certain things differently in terms of regulation, whether it's in relation to employment or, or, or environmental, such that we're in a position where we have to choose between continued compliance with our obligations under TCA or choosing to do the deal that requires us to do things differently with another partner. That might be another dilemma we have to face. Now, ultimately, for me, I think that the bigger point, and I think, again, Annalie mentioned that as well, which is, is Northern Ireland. The Northern Ireland protocol is the one which is has been and, and will be uh, a, a sort of a, 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 a bigger problem than convergence under the TCA. The problem with that, though, is that it spoils the mood music. You know, you can't really see the TCA in isolation. Um, and this is the thing our concern, and we have already started seeing that, that as a result of what's happening under the Northern Ireland Protocol, that potentially uh, creates a bad uh, a sort of mood music in relation to the TCA. So that's something to look out for. David, I think the fear was that this agreement could end up as being like the sort of constant renegotiation of the Swiss arrangements with the EU. Uh, the UK clearly aspired, if not to be Singapore on Thames, at least to be Toronto on Thames, and have you know the EU, frankly, as unconcerned about it as it is about Canada. 
do you think we've ended up in a more Canadian relationship or a more Swiss style relationship? Well, I, I think uh, Canadian relationship, as much as the agreement resembles CETA, I guess we think of diversity areas. The most significant ones are the ones that are not covered by TCA. And if you look around now, the policy papers are coming out. How can Britain take it into practice? What is this great regulatory revolution take ourselves? And it's two things keeping up over and over again. It's financial services to be NIFID, uh, the financial services regulation, which we're, we're hearing is uh, really burdensome. And second one is the GDPR on data protection. Those are the two areas now that seem to be the most right for some kind of departure. They're not covered by the TCA. Not significant <coughs> anyway. So I think those will be areas that it will be interesting to see if Britain really is prepared to strike its own financial services and risk not having access to the market. That Andrew Bailey has suggested that the government of England has suggested that's in fact what we should do. Uh, but those are not going to create tensions in the TCA because the TCA doesn't cover financial services and it, it, uh, other than the the, the digital um, trade act, which is fairly standard, doesn't say much on, on data protection. Uh, but I agree with the, the other panelists. I think Northern Ireland and the Northern Ireland Protocol is going to be the real tension. And I, I think there's, there's an explosion uh, of the expression. There's, a, um, there's tension waiting to happen there, uh, a serious dispute. And I think we'll see that potentially in the next few months. It's crucially, of course, no land border between Quebec and the EU, much as though the government there might quite like there to be one. Um, Holger, final word. Do you think this is uh, the TCA has actually achieved its objective of actually having a sort of long term stable relationship between the UK and EU that both can opt as sovereign equals? Do you agree with others that actually the real divergence action is outside the TCA on areas such as financial services, digital, digital regulation, things like that? I think there are sadly two answers to this question. One is rational economical and one is emotional political. Um, and um, sadly, I think I'll take the pessimist slide. I'll start with the optimistic rational economical. Um, the parties are incredibly similar. If you look at the global scale, uh, there's every incentive to have a functioning trade agreement. This trade agreement offers possibilities to further develop the agreement, for example, by mutual recognition of professional qualifications. It's built into the agreement. The Partnership Council can do this. Um, and as far as trade agreements go, this is a good trade agreement in some respects, exceptional in all regulatory uh, respects, rather unexceptional, um, but, this is a basis to work from with possibilities of further development. Um, sadly, then there's the emotional political. Uh, compared to EU membership, because EU membership involves uh, EU law, which uh, also eliminates non-tariff barriers, there's now a significant amount of new non-tariff barriers. Uh, and we have seen that this is uh, raising emotions and leading to conflict. Uh, then there's Northern Ireland and where's the rational idea there is we need to cooperate. We need to cooperate with Ireland. That's really the only possibility to ever find a solution to 
to, to conflict in Northern Ireland is for the UK and Northern and Ireland to work together. Um, nevertheless, there's conflict and conflict is raised and uh, that is also true overall with every non-tariff barrier. And if uh, the reordering of the economic system that is a consequence of these new barriers uh, quiets down, there will be the negotiations on fish that come and along with fish, the energy section expires. So uh, there's other potential for conflict. My hope is that the rationality and economic incentive to work together, which is enormous on both sides, will prevail and we will uh, hopefully get back to rational discourse, rational impact assessment for measures that we take. And if we do that, there is a bright future. If we don't do, don't pursue this rational course, then sadly, I think um, things will unravel rather quickly. Thank you very much. I think that's a great point to end on the sort of crossroads that lies before us, the choices. And remember that rational economics will also mean reduced work for lawyers, for all of you watching there, because we won't end up having to resort to our respective legal advisors all the time. That was a really, really interesting discussion. So well done in making that, I think, comprehensible to non-legal audiences. A very interesting uh, initial take. Uh, we should invite you all back in two, three years' time to see, see to what extent these fears or indeed possibilities have genuinely been realized. Thank everybody for watching. I'm sorry we had those technical problems at the start. And remember that you can catch up with us on IFG Live if you missed bits of this podcast on YouTube, but also tune in for loads more excellent IFG Live events. Thank you all very much for joining us.